politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned taxpayers, and budding sons of liberty to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on Tuesday, November 10th. And folks, November 10th is the 245th anniversary of the United States Marine Corps. Happy birthday. And a lot of people are surprised by that fact because they think, well, 245 years ago, we didn't have a country yet. Um, most people know that the Marine Corps was basically created under John Adams in 1798. But in reality, we had the Continental Marines. November 10th, 1775. After what they viewed as the success of Bunker Hill, they knew they'd have to fight on ships, ship-to-ship combat, amphibious landings, and they found patriots that had seafaring experience to create that branch. You know, I think back to, um, to our American history, and it truly is amazing how they were willing to fight for liberty At a time when the tyranny really wasn't that bad, it was nothing compared to what it is today. You look at how they understood the concept of self-defense, and that was pretty brave. People forget the asymmetry between the Americans and the British at that point in 1775. Let me tell you something. That was a greater asymmetry than between the North and the South during the Civil War. That did not look very good at that time, which is why despite Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill and even the Siege of Boston throughout 1775, it still wasn't clear there would be war. You think, well, that's obvious. The fighting started. But no, when they eventually kicked the British out of Boston and they sailed back, they thought they were done with them. So they figured maybe we'll just come crawling back to the British. And the debate, even in 1776 the first part of the year between the Tories and the Patriots was still pretty intense. But that's when Thomas Paine wrote his common sense and taught people the importance of both both self-defense and liberty. And the two tie together because if you don't have the right to self-defense or the ability to defend yourself, you have no liberty. Which is why, folks, I need you guys to support today's sponsor, We the People Holsters. I got mine right on my hip right now. Actually, today I'm carrying my Walther PPS. I love that gun. So I got my left-handed We the People Holsters holster here. You know, last night we heard helicopters all over the place. We have carjackings left and right. Section 8, busing, bringing in, bringing in, in, in everywhere. You wonder where, where I'm going to go. I'm going out with my father to southern Pennsylvania. We're trying to find a mountain home to retreat to if need be, a family vacation home that might eventually become our main home. Who knows where you got to go these days? But the first step is defending yourself. Now, the problem that everyone's having is that ammo and guns are very expensive, 
often you can't even get ammo. But what you can get for sure and what you need, and what I can guarantee you you're not going to get gouged like at a 300% rate, is a holster. Starting at just $39, We The People holsters are custom designed. They fit you perfectly. They're made right here in the USA. Um, Unless you have a really rare firearm, you could count on them having both right-handed and left-handed options for your gun um, with adjustable cans and rides to make it fit comfortably but also very securely. Um, you People often forget about investing in a holster, and I just I never understood that. This is your way of supporting the Second Amendment, your own self-defense, an American company, Patriots. Go to We The Holsters, we the people holsters.com forward slash CR to get your own free shipping lifetime guarantee. But here's the deal. If you put in promo code CR, you get $10 off. We the people holsters.com forward slash CR. That is we the people holsters.com slash CR offer code CR. Now, folks, it's been a week after the election. And we still don't know where things are going to head. The administration needs to come out swinging. We've now seen allegations that are extremely serious. And a lot of people are talking about lawsuits, but as we mentioned on yesterday's show with Professor Nadelson, you don't need a court to deal with public fraud in election. That is the job of a legislature. Now, first, they need to go into the investigative stage. But remember, they do have the recourse to select those electors. So if you are a listener in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Georgia, call your Republican legislators and let them know you expect a full investigation. And you expect that if the fraud turns out to be true, as we think it is, they will offer the governors to either conduct a new election or if they decline to do that, then they will have no choice but to pick the electors pursuant to the way they believe the outcome really was based on their investigation. Now, what we're starting to see is very damning. You obviously had yesterday the signed affidavit by poll watchers, including one who was a former assistant attorney general in Michigan, And what we are seeing is very disturbing. Just going to read part of the affidavit in Michigan. All absentee ballots that existed were required to be inputted into the QVF system by 9 p.m. on November 3rd. Okay, it's 9 p.m. election night as the returns are coming in. This was required to be done in order to have a final list of absentee voters who returned their ballots prior to 8 p.m. on November 3rd. Okay, because that was the deadline. On November 4th, 2020, that's the next day, the city of Detroit election worker was instructed to improperly predate the absentee ballots received date that were not in the QVF as if they had been received on or before November 3rd. She was later told to alter the information in the QVF to falsely show that the absentee ballots had been received in time to be valid. 
She estimates that this was done to thousands of ballots. And again, this is not, see, there's one thing if you woke up the next day, I don't know, you were on vacation, you slept that night, you didn't watch the election returns. But for those of us who watched it, for those of us who watched the pre-election data on the number of ballots that were requested in return, this all makes sense. There couldn't have been this massive late-night lopsided discovery just in the urban areas, but just in the states that they needed, not in all the urban areas in the country. Let's continue. The election employee observed a large number of people who came to the satellite location to vote in person, but they had already applied for an absentee ballot. These people were allowed to vote in person, were not required to return the mailed absentee ballot or sign an affidavit that the voter lost the mailed absentee ballot. Now listen to this. At approximately 4 a.m. on November 4th, that's election morning, or the morning after, tens of thousands of ballots were suddenly brought into the counting room through the back door. This is Exhibit C affidavit of Andrew Sito. These new ballots were brought to the TCF Center by vehicles with out-of-state license plates. It was observed that all these new ballots were cast for Joe Biden. Okay. The ballot counters were required to check every ballot to confirm that the name on the ballot matched the name on the electronic poll list. This was the list of all persons who had registered to vote on or before November 1st. The ballot counters were also provided with the supplemental sheets, which had the names of all persons who had registered to vote on either November 2nd or November 3rd. Um... At approximately 9 p.m. on Wednesday, November 4th, numerous boxes of ballots were brought to TCF Center. Upon information and belief, the Wayne County Clerk's Office instructed the ballot counters to use the date of birth of January 1st, 1900 on all these newly appearing ballots. None of the names of these new ballots corresponded with any registered voter on the QVF. Despite the election rules that required that all absentee ballots be in, inputted into the QVF system before 9 p.m. on November 3rd, the election workers inputted all these new ballots into the QVF and manually added each voter to the list after 9 p.m. Upon information, I believe the vast majority of these new ballots indicated the voter's date of birth as January 1st, 1990. Evidently, they all live in Detroit longer than Moses did. These newly received ballots were either fraudulent or apparently cast by persons who were not registered to vote prior to the polls closing at 8 p.m. on November 3rd. And then obviously in all these cases, they were denied access, they were denied observations, which is required under state law. Then you had the signatures. Whenever a person requests an absentee ballot, either by mail or in person, that person was required to sign the absentee voter application. When the voter returned his or her absentee ballot to be counted, the voter was required to sign the outside of the envelope that contained the ballot. Election officials who process absentee ballots are required to compare the signature on the absentee ballot application with the signature on the absentee ballot envelope. Election officials at the TCF Center instructed workers to never validate or compare the signatures on absentee applications and the absentee envelopes to ensure their authenticity and their validity. 
Next, a poll challenger witnessed tens of thousands of ballots being delivered to the TCF Center that were not in any approved, sealed, or tamper-proof container. Large quantities of ballots were delivered to the TCF Center in what appeared to be mail bins with open tops. Contrary to law, these ballot bins and containers did not have lids, were not sealed, and did not have the capability of having a metal seal. Okay? So, folks, people do lie under oath, you know? Just because you sign an affidavit, people do lie under oath. But that is a big first step of known individuals, especially one who is a former assistant attorney general that has a very you know robust legal career and he has a lot on the line if he's caught perjuring himself. So that is a starting point. If those allegations are true, that means Trump won the election. Okay, so this is not something that we can move on. This is not something that we can move on. You know what it reminds me of? What's that movie, the Bronx scene or something, and I'm forgetting it, where, I don't know, it must have been in the 30s, 40s, a group of gangsters, motorcycle gangs, would go into New York City and, you know, go into bars and be unruly and throw the liquor around the place and smash things and trash the place. And everyone was kind of scared of them and they'd keep this going and and they always knew they can get away with it. And then they come into one bar and this old Italian guy who wasn't going to take it anymore, you know, while they're just, you know, throwing the drinks around, he goes and he locks the door and he says, now you can't leave buddy. And then he just brings out the Italian mafia and they just beat the hell out of them. That's kind of what this is. See, I don't think you have to look too far for the voter fraud. They've been doing this for a long time. And the stupid Republican Party has just tolerated it. The same way they tolerate anarchy and tyranny and corona fascism and jailbreak. They just go along with it. It's the price of doing business, of being that other party in power that gets their fiefdom. So it's not like they did this too carefully. If Trump doesn't back down, we will discover this stuff. Then you had another Detroit poll watcher in that um, affidavit. He testified at approximately 4.30 a.m. I thought everyone was going to go home as our shift had ended. But then there were two men in charge of the counting, one in his 30s, one in his 50s. Approximately 4.30 a.m., November 4th, 2020. The man in his 50s got on the microphone and stated that another shipment of absentee ballots would be arriving and would have to be counted. I heard other challengers say that several vehicles with out-of-state license plates pulled up to the TCF Center a little before 4.30 and unloaded boxes of ballots at approximately 4.30 a.m. Tens of thousands of ballots were brought in, placed on eight long tables. Unlike the other ballots, these boxes were brought in from the rear of the room. The same procedure was performed on the ballots that arrived at approximately 4.30 a.m., but I specifically noticed that every ballot I observed was cast for Joe Biden. While counting these new ballots, I heard counters say at least five or six times that all five or six ballots were for Joe Biden. All ballots sampled that I heard and observed were for Joe Biden. And that's exactly the timing that we heard when, you know, that we observed everything flip. 
They stopped the counting for a while. They were supposed to go home. And they kept counting later with suspicious arriving things that they knew would be arriving under the most suspicious circumstances at the right time in the right place. And they were all for Joe Biden. Just like in Georgia, where they had a water main break and told all the Republican watchers to go home. But the counting resumed in Fulton County. And we're just supposed to say, oh yeah, you know, let's just move on. And again, I want to reiterate, and I think Trump needs to give a speech on this and his surrogates need to make this point over and over again. The biggest thing the other side has going for them is that it's a week past election. Like It's time to move on. You know, we, we, we don't usually do this. But the point is, they are the ones who created this system that even without these allegations would take a long time to verify. The media themselves, Chris Wallace himself, said on election during the debate night that it could be days, perhaps weeks, at, until we know who the winner is. They knew this before. And now they look at us like we're from Mars. Like, why are you not conceding? Well, gee, when you have an election built off of unverifiable mail-ins, yeah, I mean, we need to count them. Especially when, you know, and, and all these people are saying, well, you know, you look at Trump's lead over Hillary was even more narrow in all these states than Biden's current unofficial lead is, and Hillary graciously conceded. Yeah, because A, there are no allegations of fraud, and B, Trump was ahead the whole night. And he remained ahead. It was just like, meaning, in fact, he was actually ahead by less. And then when they closed the gap, it didn't close fully, and Trump was ahead. Here, Trump was ahead even more, and they flipped it. Just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And by the way, folks, I just wanted to mention. Remember how we talked about this during the lead up to the election? That. Remember these states, Republicans actually filled out more. Return more ballots, more mail-ins like everyone's saying, oh, the mail-ins were 90-10 for uh, Biden. But it's not really true. It depends on the state. And in some states, it wasn't like that. If you remember in Wisconsin, trying to remember what it was, in, um, in Georgia, I mean, it was roughly 50% Republican, 42% Democrat. Okay. 50, 42, Republican edge on ballots returned. Okay? Now, Democrats had a slight edge on ballots requested in Georgia, but that's part of the suspicion, where there are a lot of them that weren't returned that wound up getting into that pile. Okay? You go on to Wisconsin, and trying to remember what it was i believe it was something like 4336 4337 republican edge in michigan it was 4139 republican edge there's some, there's some more independence there 
But the point is, if anything, Republicans had a slight edge in these states. So you can't have these late night, only in those places, only at that time, only in those states, 90-10 and sometimes 100-0 dumps of mail-ins. It doesn't make any sense. And remember, folks, remember this well, that according to the exit polls, Trump actually did ever so slightly, like only one point, but one point better than, you know, with Republicans than Biden did with Democrats. In other words, you did not have this crossover vote. They're saying Trump lost a lot of independence, but at least among Republicans, it became clear there was no crossover. There was no exodus of Republicans jumping, registered Republicans crossing over to vote for Biden in mass. And in fact, there wasn't at all. Uh, Trump seemed to do better than any recent Republican did in maintaining the party vote. So, so there you have it, folks. There you have it. Utter, utter nonsense. And we're just told to go on, go on. Again, it is the obligation of every Republican in the legislature. If you are in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan, call your Republican legislators and say, you have a control of both houses. Pretty easy majorities. There is no excuse for you not taking this the full length of it. Taking this the full distance. And we see it now. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. In Wisconsin, voter turnout matched the record high in 2004. Okay? 73% of all eligible, not registered, but eligible voters. And it just, we just didn't see that with the black vote. It didn't reflect the Obama elections. Not at all, not by a long shot. And then as I noted yesterday, you had these amazing analysis that several have done showing that Throughout the night, there was a consistent trend in Florida and every other state where once you had the initial dumps, which were, you know, obviously not with a pattern, eventually a pattern built of a consistent spread of, okay, this dump, Trump would win, this dump, uh, you know, Biden would win, and, and so on and so forth. And if anything, it got a little bit more Republican throughout the night because, as expected, it takes longer for uh, the rural areas to the, the mail-ins to reach the polling places. And then suddenly, late in the night, but only in those few states, it flipped the other way, just way out of whack. It's utterly insane, and I think you guys all know it makes no sense. All of us know that. 
But let's move on. Let's move on to Pennsylvania now. This is an attorney who practices law in, in Philadelphia. He wrote in The Federalist, I was in Philadelphia watching fraud happen. Here's how it went down. Legacy media are lying when they claim that all of President Trump's allegations of voter fraud are baseless. I know because they argued a case on the president's behalf in federal court in Philadelphia. At issue was President Trump's request for an order changing the way Pennsylvania absentee and mail-in ballots are being reviewed at the Philadelphia Convention Center. CNN and other claims... He, and others claim he lost. That's false. He won. As I made the argument on behalf of the president's campaign, I can tell you what really happened. President Trump went to court about two problems. Number one, only a handful of Republican observers, substantially fewer than the Democrats had there, were being admitted to the room in that convention center. Number two, the few who could get in weren't permitted to get close enough to see what happened. Why are they hiding? What are they hiding? At the convention center, I personally observed dozens of Trump campaign volunteers being barred from counting from the counting room, even though they'd been properly registered as observers. Despite a binding order of the state's Commonwealth Court, the handful of Republican observers who could get into the room weren't allowed up to the barriers set at six feet from the closest table where the work was being done. So even though they were in the room, they had no way to tell what was happening. If there's no fraud, why is the Democrat-controlled Board of Elections unwilling to let people get close enough to actually see what people are doing? So on a borrowed laptop at around 2 p.m. on election day, I typed up a very short document to start a federal lawsuit and to request that the federal court intervene to prohibit these unfair practices. At about 4.30 p.m., its filing was authorized by the campaign. The federal judge ordered a hearing that began at 5.30 and went on for two hours. In open court, the judge compelled the Board of Elections to agree that the Republicans could have up to 60 reps in the room. That was a huge victory not only for Republicans, but for anyone who actually wants to have vote tabulations worthy of belief. He also compelled the board to agree that all observers could get up to the six-foot barrier. Having secured this agreement from the Board of Elections, the court dismissed the president's motion for court order relief as moot. Courts often do that when they secure an agreement between the parties. It means the court doesn't have to issue an order, which would be appealable, granting or denying the motion, and it means the court doesn't have to write an opinion. What it doesn't mean is that the request was made, made on behalf of the president to stop the election fraud was moot, despite the false spin seen in other mainstream media put on it. And then he notes, other people have gathered substantial evidence that there are indeed things to hide, including this video showing, among other things, footage of government officials wearing Joe Biden face masks, filling in blanks, and already submitted mail-in votes. Obviously, now we have um, two postal workers in Pennsylvania alleging you know, they were forced to backdate things. And again, it doesn't take a genius it doesn't take a genius to understand that even without rampant, just total dumping and fraud in the hundreds of thousands, that if you stupidly, and this is your choice, decide to place the majority of your electorate on mail-ins, that you are going to lose a lot of your people just through 
not properly filling it out. That's just a reality. It's statistics. That's your fault. Meaning, I'm saying even among the people that legitimately filled it out in some way, they weren't dead voters, they, they themselves did it, it wasn't ballot harvested, even without all that which we know is built on top of it, that the mail-ins enabled them to do, but even without it, just the regular people, they're going to make mistakes. And the law is an ass, and the law is the law, and those are not valid ballots. You cannot have a two-tiered system where you know those who do it properly get held to one standard, you go in person, and other people... Oh, mail-in, yeah, okay, you know, you meant this. So I'm just going to fill in your signature. I'm just going to fill in your address for you. No, that's not okay. This is third-world crap that we're seeing here. Utter third-world crap. And speaking of a third-world election in a third-world country... This is from the Seattle Times. Oregon elections director fired after he details problems. Oregon's election director was abruptly fired in a text message by the Secretary of State after he pointed out serious issues with the state's aging and vulnerable technology for running elections. Election director Stephen Trout learned in a text message Thursday night that he was out. Friday, Secretary of State Bev Clarno, Republican appointed to the position by Democratic Governor Kate Brown announced to county clerks and other election officials in Oregon's 36 counties that today is also Steve Trout's last day with the agency. It's kind of a funny time in the middle of an election to fire someone. Isn't it? It's a little bit weird. I would never leave in the middle of an election, Trout said. This is the toughest part of the election behind the scenes with the canvas, manual audit, electoral college, and recounts. I would not abandon my staff or the counties before the election is over. Trout, in a November 2 letter to the Republican Democratic candidates to replace Clarno, described problems with the internet technology side of the Secretary of State's office and indicated he'd, been, he'd be looking for another job. He also said $5.7 million federal virus relief allocation would be returned by December 31st, yada yada. Um... And the point is, he talked about the technological side of things. And I thought this was fascinating. Because, you know, Oregon is not a contested state. And, you know, he was making a neutral argument. He was, his complaint was neutral. It wasn't political at all. And that's the thing, like, even putting aside... This whole business of the glitches and the dumps that somehow are always 100 to 0 Democrat. But just the actual system is insane. We freaking can't run an election. And we've always known this to be a problem. But, but the thing is, the people who stand to benefit from the current archaic system are the ones who also cheat for the left. So they don't want to even fix the things that are you know, would affect everyone. But no, just move on. Move on. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. What else goes on in a third world country? I want to give you a taste of what ballot harvesting looks like. Okay, this is from Newsweek. A woman is being investigated for voter intimidation after reportedly collecting ballots from seniors at a low-income housing complex in California. 
the LA Register of Voters said a criminal investigation had begun by examining security video footage and interviewing potential victims. The unnamed woman, who has not been named, allegedly collected ballots from senior citizens who reside at the Westminster Arms in South uh, LA. The allegation was made by the son of the senior resident and was first reported by local Korean language news channel uh, SBS International claims that the woman went door to door at the senior living complex and steered the seniors to vote for and attempted to convince them to vote for Democrat presidential candidate Joe Biden. Notice how it's always in one direction. And again, this is this is Newsweek. This is the L.A. prosecutor's office. OK, this is not some right wing conspiracy. She's then reported to have collected their ballots saying she would fill in the rest. This is what ballot harvesting is. This is why it must be a federal crime to administer someone else's ballot and hand it in for them with few exceptions like military. And and they always do it with immigrants. I think that this was particularly concerning about this allegation is that it seemed to at least potentially prey on vulnerable population, non-English speaking or at least limited English speaking voters who I think are easily susceptible to being duped in a process like this. And by the way, this happens all the time with non-citizens voting. I'm not saying the ones here were necessarily non-citizens. They could have been citizens. But this is how we get non-citizens voting. Often, they don't even mean to do it. They're not trying to do it themselves. People lie to them and say, oh, no, you have a green card. You could vote or whatever. You know, assuming they're not illegal immigrants, let's say they're here legally, they think they can vote. These agitator groups go around and do that. And the irony is they're actually harming them because, you know, then they could be convicted of voter fraud, which is a felony, which is a deportable offense. But this is what's happening. This is this is what has been happening. Built into the Democrat majorities in states at a federal level is a certain percentage of seats that they have won illegally. And this has been true for a generation. Easily. And it's accelerating and getting worse every election. So many things that have been passed with such a close vote in this country that has created a certain political and legal reality that has engendered the ability for the Democrats to pass the next liberal thing was built on fraud. And again, I I just want to get back to election night. On what just didn't make sense. You look at the turnout. In Wisconsin, it wound up being over 90% of registered voters. It was something like 73% of eligible voters. And everyone's talking about, oh, they have same-day registration. Yeah, we know that. But so does California and many other states. And they didn't see that degree of... um, of, of of voting. You know, in Australia, there's mandatory voting. You actually get fined if you don't vote. This is probably where we're headed soon. Recent elections had um, turned out about 92%. It wasn't 100%. So there you go. It just doesn't make sense. Everyone knows they weren't jazzed by it. They weren't jazzed by Biden. Milwaukee reported an 84% turnout. Okay? You look at Cleveland, 
and they had a 60% turnout. They're similar cities in many respects. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, no, um, Cleveland's was 51%. 51% turnout, Milwaukee was 84%. Similar demographics. It just doesn't make sense. And what's funny is, like, all these people are dismissing it, like, yeah, Cleveland, like, that well, that, that state didn't matter. This, uh, Milwaukee was in Wisconsin, it was very uh, c- competitive. It makes no No, if you look at the polling data, I mean, we knew that, but if you look at what most people thought of the polling data... Ohio was roughly 50-50. Half the polls had Biden up, half the polls had Trump up. Whereas Wisconsin, there was not a single poll that had Trump up. One poll had Biden up 17. Many of them had him up 8 to 11 or so. It wasn't competitive. Not nearly as much as Ohio was on paper in most people's minds. Now, we know the polls were wrong, but most people did not realize that. So the notion that if you're a black voter for Biden, you would be, you know, 70% more enthusiastic to turn out for him in Milwaukee than Cleveland. Just we've never seen anything like that. And again, it defies logic that Biden somehow had enough of a ground game. He didn't have a ground game and enthusiasm to bolster the black turnout. More than Obama did. It just doesn't make sense. And then you have the Biden-only ballots. There were over 450,000 Biden-only ballots cast nationwide. Meaning, they just filled out the presidential ballot for Biden and nothing else. Now, look, we all know that to a certain extent, there are people who do this. And there's people who do this on both sides. Republican voters, Democrat voters, independent voters. You know, they're, they're not interested in other stuff. They go for the big ticket item, presidential election, they're done. They don't fill out the rest. But I don't recall ever seeing such high numbers before, but only Biden and only, again, in the states that they needed. In Georgia, President Trump's vote total was almost exactly in line with the 2.43 million votes cast for Republican Senate candidates. So if you look, they're both about 2.43 million. I think there's less than 1,000 vote variance, meaning there's less than 1,000 difference between those who voted for the Republican Senate candidates and those who voted just, you know, voted for the president. Maybe about 800 or so ballots were only for Trump. You look at Biden, and he had a surplus of 95,801 votes over the Democrat Senate candidates. Again, this is not stuff that we typically see. This is not stuff that we typically see. So that's where we are. And and then like 
this year, obviously, we had the insane rate of mail-in ballots. Okay? And of course, tons of them in Pennsylvania because they changed the laws before the election without properly changing the laws. The governor did it unilaterally without the legislature. And with the help of the state court. They only have a .03% rejection rate. Okay? .03. That's 3 out of 10,000 were rejected. That is one-thirtieth the rejection level in the state of Pennsylvania last election. And given that this election, it was more helter-skelter with this frantic push to get so many more of them um, mail-ins, I would expect that rate to be even higher. Again, last time they were rejected at a rate of 3 out of 100. Now it's 3 out of 10,000. Doesn't make any sense. As others have pointed out, you look at New York State, just north, and they did have a wide, widespread mail-in campaign. They're very into the COVID fascism. They rejected mail-in ballots in June at a rate of 21%. Maybe it got better over time, but that's the deal. It just doesn't make sense. This is third world stuff. Utter third world stuff. And I just want to come full circle back to what we started with. The obligation of the state legislators to rectify this. A lot of people don't realize this is why we are a republic. You know, when you're a kid, you think like, oh, more democracy, the better. Oh, let the people decide. But what our founders understood is that letting the people decide, so to speak, fully, without another filter, another layer, is letting the oligarchs decide. It's letting the elites decide. It's what Madison, but even Jefferson, who was much more on the democracy spectrum, towards the democracy of the spectrum than than almost all the other founders who supported the French Revolution, But he still called it, in the notes on the state of Virginia, an elective despotism. This is exactly why. Because, look, it sounds very draconian. Like, there's one thing, you you appoint electors, and the electors appoint the president. But shouldn't the people appoint the electors? Why the state legislatures? Now, ultimately, the tradition is they allow the people to vote. But technically, from the Constitution, the states could, the state legislatures could uh, reclaim that authority. Why would the Constitution give them that authority? Cut the people out of the process of choosing the president? Folks, get a piece of, um, a long piece of tag board or paper. Right on one end of it, let's say the left end, oligarchy slash monarchy. And you could have monarchy at the far end, oligarchy a little bit closer in, but still towards the end. Then you go to the far right, end of it, and right on there, democracy. Now, right in the middle, republic. Now, on paper, 
you'd be like, well, Republic is closer to the monarchy than democracy is. It's just a little bit too close. Like it's like having like people decide a small number of people and not the people, right? That that's that's shouldn't we have the the most democracy, the farthest away? But nope, folks, that's not how it works. Now take your piece of paper and conjoin it in a circle. <laughs> and you will find that the democracy will now be right next to the oligarchy. And the republic will be dead square in the center, the farthest you can get from both of them. The ultimate centrist position, the ultimate moderate position, constitutional republic, the ultimate balance that our founders chose to achieve. And I think now we understand this. Back then we had kings. Now we have a ruling, governing, cultural, Marxist elite in Western democracies. And it's run by big business, big tech, big education, a ruling elite that rule through fear and intimidation and groupthink. So you can manipulate an election. Oh, let the people decide. Yeah, well, what if they rig the ballots? Now what do you do? You're screwed. I'm saying aside from the traditional view of sometimes the people get it wrong, you know, a lot of people are like, well, the founders didn't trust the people. That's true, they didn't. Not fully. And that's definitely a valid argument, but this is even beyond that. What if the people are for a certain thing? They're against the oligarchs, but the oligarchs manip- manipulate them with a false ballot. This is how being a republic is not less democracy or less choice and freedom. It's more freedom because it creates another layer of protection of checks and balances. Hey, wait a minute. Let's get together and have a legislative session. And let's audit this. Had, had the Constitution not given the legislatures this power, you couldn't audit it. Because they wouldn't have the power to decide the electors. Now, now their audit is meaningful because they could decide pursuant to their audit that we don't like what we see and we're going to move in a different direction. That's not an oligarchy. Because it's done openly with a legislative process, bicameral, hearings, public debate. They live among the people more than anyone else. It's a, it's a smaller unit of a smaller district. You could get in their face. They could be under a lot of pressure. Having the courts decide it is like an oligarchy. They just come down and with an opinion. Here, there's multiple people in two bodies that have to agree on a majority vote. But also, you could really get in their face. And it, undoubtedly, both sides will. And they'll be under a lot of pre- pressure. To make the right decision. So it's the right mix of having a layer of people that are vested with a responsibility to study it more carefully than the general public would. But it's not like they could do whatever they want. The general public could really get in their face. Attend the hearings and ultimately vote them out too. That is the system that our founders fought for. But we need a revolution, folks. As Thomas Paine said, these are the times that try men's souls. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It's dearness only that gives everything its value. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. 
Those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. And in his final writings on January 10, 1776, as war became inevitable, he said, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And I really think we need that. Our system has failed. And I don't don't just mean our election system, but our entire system. It's irremediably broken. Playing this game of, oh, Republicans win the Senate and win this and win that. They don't do anything with it. Unfortunately, what we have now is the people are mixed in too much. There's not a single red state. You have all the blue cities. So it's a logistical problem. But there is going to be, need to be, a degree of self-sorting. I'm sure of this. But that starts by us emphatically pushing our views as emphatically as the other side pushes theirs. So the same way they make it that we can't live in their areas, well, we'll make it that they they won't want to live in ours. And that's how we'll naturally drift to what really is the most peaceful solution at this point. But again, folks, we're going to have a lot of anarchy no matter what happens. Make sure you get your We the People holster. WeThePeopleHolsters.com forward slash CR. Offer code CR for your $10 off your holster. Make sure you certainly have your guns and ammo as well. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. Stay safe. And thank you for listening.